by the President of the United States of America, a proclamation that on the first day of January, in the year of our Lord, 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free, and that the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authorities thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of said persons. And upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice, warranted by the Constitution, upon military necessity, I invoke the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of Almighty God. Done at the city of Washington, this first day of January, in the year of our Lord, 1863, by the President, Abraham Lincoln. I'm Lucas Morrell. You just heard excerpts from the Emancipation Proclamation issued by President Abraham Lincoln on January 1st, 1863, banning slavery in the rebel states almost two years into the Civil War. The war continued until 1865. When the South surrendered, Union troops rode across the country to spread the news. On June 19, 1865, the U.S. Army arrived in Galveston, Texas, to inform some of the last remaining enslaved Americans that they were free. We continue to celebrate that day as Juneteenth. Here's my conversation about Juneteenth with Professor Martha Jones and your host, Jeffrey Rosen, on this week's We the People. Martha? Uh, President Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation was issued on January 1st, 1863. Why do we commemorate Juneteenth, which took place two years later? It's important to remember um, the limits, the very uh, substantial limits of President Lincoln's uh, Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. Um, it was a military uh, order, um, a part of Lincoln's strategy um, that looked to, in a sense, pronounce um, enslaved people in rebel-held territories um, to now be free. Um, but we recognize that the president did not, in fact, have the capacity uh, to enforce that order in those parts of the country that remained under rebellion. And then we have to recall that there are four states um, that remain in the Union, um, the so-called border states, um, that continue to be slaveholding territories that are exempt from the Emancipation Proclamation because they are not in rebellion. Um, so that is a long way of saying um, that very few enslaved people are in fact liberated by the Emancipation Proclamation. Slavery's abolition will require an amendment to the Constitution that I know we'll talk about, the 13th Amendment. Um, and then finally, word of that constitutional amendment will arrive in Texas, um, but only months after. Lucas, Martha has told us that the Emancipation Proclamation did not immediately free all enslaved people. Further, uh, although General Robert E. Lee surrendered his troops in Virginia in April of 1865, 
uh, Texas continued to fight for nearly two months after that. Why did that fighting continue? And why is Juneteenth significant? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the fighting continued in part because most, uh, in fact, we'll put it this way, very few soldiers of the United States Army were uh, at that point in Texas. Most of the fighting took place elsewhere. And so by the time word got to uh, the enslaved uh, black people in Texas through that order of uh, General Granger's uh, on June 19th, 1865, uh, yeah, the war pretty much was over by that point. But as Lincoln himself said in the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, this is uh, an act that's going to take, if you will, two to tango. Uh, the slaves would need to themselves uh, uh, do what they could, as he put it, uh, to make efforts they may make for their actual freedom. It would actually require them to free themselves from uh, any limitations that were uh, up till that point in time uh, being placed on them. But even after that, their own, if you will, self-emancipation or liberation would amount to nothing unless they had the law, that is to say, the federal government on their side. And Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, as it followed the Second Confiscation Act of Congress, did precisely that. Uh, we have to remember that just because a person flees from enslavement, most famously Frederick Douglass, did this. Uh, when he made that public in his autobiography, the famous narrative, he actually, within months, had to flee to the United Kingdom precisely because he was an outlaw. He physically removed himself from his enslaver, but the laws of the United States and of the state of Maryland did not consider him a free person until he was legally manumitted. And that did not happen until two years later, when his friends both on, on both sides of the pond, if you will, uh, paid for his liberation. So it required both. It required both the agency, as we say today, the initiative, uh, the self-emancipation of the enslaved, as well as the federal government saying, those of you who, be, who come into the, the authority of the Navy or the United States Army will be uh, defended in their freedom uh, by the federal government. So it took both. And so uh, that, that's why, uh, you know, Lincoln could say something on January 1st, 1863. And what that did is actually turned the U.S. military into a liberating army. That's such a crucially important point. It took both the action of the federal government and the action of formerly enslaved people to make freedom a reality. Uh, Martha Jones, in your book, Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rights in Antebellum America, you argue that it's black advocacy that ultimately shapes the nation's understanding of what it means to be an American citizen. Tell us about some of that advocacy in the antebellum period and the uh, figures that we the people listeners should know about who were crucial in making emancipation a reality. Well, it is true that even um, before we get to the period of the Civil War, uh, Black Americans have for many decades, um, yes, pressed for freedom, um, but then have pressed the question, what then is freedom? Um, isn't there a substance to freedom that would include citizenship, um, that would include political rights, um, would include 
um, the capacity to protect one's person, um, one's property before the law. And so in the years, um, really the decades before the Civil War, um, free Black Americans have already been at work on the kinds of questions that are now going to confront formerly enslaved Texans in June of 1865. Um, what precisely does freedom mean? And when we look closely at the words of that June 19th proclamation, we recognize um, that there is a debate um, that is already um, underway. Um, what is the relationship between enslaved people and former slaveholders? What are the obligations of formerly enslaved people um, to work? Will they indeed have political rights? Um, may they travel? Um, these are all live, real questions um, that no one edict will resolve in this period, um, but we appreciate the ways in which this particular edict um, in a sense, has a big question mark at the end of it, uh, because enslaved people, formerly enslaved people, um, will have their opportunity to respond, not only with their words, but their, when with their actions. Lucas, in your book, Lincoln and the American Founding, you argue also that Juneteenth is related to July 4th, because just as July 4th declared certain truths to be self evident. America had to fight for it for years to make it a reality and similarly for Juneteenth. So tell us about the relationship between Lincoln and the founding and Juneteenth. Yes, uh, thank you for that question. Um, I've always understood the holiday Juneteenth uh, in light of, uh, if you will, um, our first Emancipation Proclamation. So to restate that, I've always understood Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation in light of the nation's first Emancipation Proclamation, which is the Declaration of Independence uh, that was issued on July 4th, 1776. Uh, July 4th stating as a self-evident truth that all men are created equal, that they've got the rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, that the only legitimate government is government by consent of the governed. These can all be true in principle, but they require, of course, enforcement. The very thing that Americans, American revolutionaries, believed was lacking as a result of what they believed it was a growing tyranny by uh, the erstwhile mother England, if you will. And so even though we declared our right to rule ourselves uh, as any free people naturally have, that was a truth that didn't become a practical reality until we sued for peace, as it were, with uh, uh, upon military victory, right? It didn't come on July 5th, 1776, it didn't come the following year. It came at the beginning with the surrender of Cornwallis at Yorktown in 1781, and then a formal diplomatic legal process between, uh, at that point, two nations, the United States and Great Britain uh, in 1783. And so just like the first emancipation, the Declaration of Independence, so too the, the Juneteenth, June 19th, 1865 proclamation. These were words that were meant uh, to have efficacy, legal efficacy, but that efficacy would take time. And, and that's why I have written uh, on several occasions that Juneteenth is a very distinctive American holiday in that sense. 
in the same sense that our freedom and independence as a people came, if you will, by fits and starts. So too, the commemoration of Black American liberation as a result of not simply emancipation, but as a result also of abolition of the actual institution that came with the 13th Amendment later, right? Passed uh, by both houses by the time January of 1865 rolled around, then ratified by the states in December of 65, of course, many months after Lincoln's assassination. And so this is kind of the American way. It's two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. Um, Martha, how do you see the relation between July 4th and the Declaration and Juneteenth? And did some of the heroic advocates of abolition who you write about in the antebellum period invoke the ideals of the Declaration or not? Absolutely. Um, The Declaration um, in many ways is for Black Americans before the Civil War a more potent, uh, a more vivid, um, a more persuasive instrument than is the Constitution itself. Um, It is the Declaration that is the aspirational document um, that um, provides for, um, if you will, the ceiling Right of what um, belonging um, to the nation can and should mean. Um, it is the Constitution, right, that is thorny, um, that is um, too often um, silent um, and um, difficult to interpret for Black Americans oftentimes. Um, but they read these two documents together. Um, and this is a school of interpretation of the Constitution before the Civil War, one that reads um, the ideals of the Declaration um, into the Constitution itself, um, where Black Americans argue um, phrases like the equal protection of the laws, privileges and immunities of citizenship, um, phrases that don't have transparent meaning um, should indeed Um, be understood in light of the values that the Declaration um, has um, itself set forth. Um, It's a bit of trivia, but it's one I think that's important. Um, When John Quincy Adams um, argues the great he makes his great soliloquy in the Amistad case, um, arguing for the freedom of Black captives who have found themselves now on the shores of the United States um, uh, it, at risk for being treated as um, bounty. Um, it, it, when he argues that case, what hangs on the wall of the Supreme Court is the Declaration of Independence. And um, two copies, in fact. And it's a reminder that not only for Black Americans, but for all Americans, including at the highest echelons of lawmaking, the Declaration continued um, to be a critical touchstone. And Black Americans know that and work to take advantage of that as they advocate for their own freedom and their own citizenship. Thank you for that inspiring image of the Declaration sitting at the Supreme Court, as uh, John Quincy Adams argued the Amistad case. Uh, Lucas Morell, your book on Lincoln and the Founding is central in understanding uh, how people in the antebellum era interpreted the Constitution in light of the Declaration. You talk about the influence on Lincoln of Washington, the Declaration, the Constitution, and others. 
you note that in his Cooper Union address, Lincoln cited to Dr. Franklin Hamilton and Governor Morris as among the most noted anti-slavery men of those times. So tell us what uh, Lincoln took from the Declaration that inspired the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln was um, president-elect in December of 1860 when he received a letter from, of all people, Alexander H. Stevens, who is uh, famous, of course, uh, ultimately, eventually becoming Confederate vice president. But he is a man um, who gave a speech in November of 1860 to uh, fellow citizens of Georgia arguing against secession, not in principle, but in practice. He said Georgia had prospered as being a part of the Union, not apart from it. Uh, and he wrote a letter to Lincoln saying that a word from you right now would be like apples of gold and pictures of silver. Uh, pictures meaning the frame around the apples of gold. And Lincoln mulled over that, uh, turns out to be an allusion to Proverbs uh, 25. And Lincoln writes a note to himself where he connects the Constitution and the Union of the American States, which he revere, he reveres. He connects it to what he believes is the real cause of what he calls the philosophical cause of American prosperity, which were not the Constitution or the, even the Union of the States. He saw those as means to the ends spelled out in the Declaration. So for Lincoln, he cannot see one without the other. The Constitution and the, uh, the uh, Federal Union of the American States were to be revered only in light of uh, as uh, Professor, uh, uh, as, Martha, <laughs> uh, uh, as Martha pointed out earlier, uh, only revered in light of the aspirations, uh, those self-evident truths of the Declaration of Independence. And so Lincoln, instead of saying, well, yeah, I have to give these new words for this situation, he says, instead of new words, we've got old words. Let's look at the words of Jefferson, if you will, the words of the Second Continental Congress, the words of the American founders, and those are the words that are apples of gold to us set in pictures of silver. These are the reasons why we should hold on to the Constitutional Union of the United States. And he took inspiration, ironically enough, from a former Whig, as Lincoln was, his one term in Congress. He took inspiration from that letter from Alexander Stevens uh, to remind himself about what he needed to keep clear as he prepared his first inaugural address which would happen on March 4th, 1861. And what, what was mentioned earlier uh, by Martha is really important about privileges or immunities. Lincoln says at the outset of that very important speech that yes, he'd be open, not just to enforcing the Fugitive Slave Act, which he is bound to do under the constitution as president, because it is, uh, as they say, so nominated in the bond, but he said he would welcome a new law a revision of the Fugitive Slave Act that would also protect privileges or immunities. And there's one group of people he's really having in mind there, and that is free black citizens. This is important enough to actually read. He said, ought not all the safeguards of liberty known in civilized and humane jurisprudence to be introduced so that a free man be not in any case surrendered as a slave? This is Lincoln as the incoming Republican re a president of the United States. He said, at the same time, should we not provide by law for the enforcement of that clause in the Constitution, which guarantees, quote, the citizens of each state 
shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states, end quote. This is a passage that Lincoln also mentioned during his famous debates with Stephen Douglas, a categorical white supremacist. And so he, Lincoln, interestingly enough, even though he does all he can to try to entice uh, citizens who had who considered themselves not American anymore because they have so-called seceded and trying to continue to keep Virginia and a few other slave states in the Union at that time, he still says, you want to talk about the Fugitive Slave Act? Oh, yeah, I'm going to enforce it. And by the way, I wouldn't mind it being revised to be better. And that better part to make it more perfect, I think, he takes his cue from the natural rights that he believes the founders believed all men possessed. Uh, that is wonderful. It is so important to learn that Lincoln invoked the language that would become the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment upon taking the presidency. Martha, to what degree did that Privileges or Immunities language occur throughout the antebellum theory among activists? And um, what can that tell us about the connections between the Declaration and the Constitution? Yes. Black Americans have been um, careful scrutinizers of the Constitution um, for many, many decades by the time we get to this moment that Professor Morrell has just um, described. Um, why? Um, because they are looking for those places, those clauses, those phrases um, that might appear um, to offer them a toehold on standing before this constitution. Um, so there are two. Um, the first I'll say is that provision that uh, requires the president to be a natural born citizen of the United States. Black Americans seize on this provision and they say, if the president is a natural born citizen, there must be such a category. And are we not natural born citizens as would be any man. Um, there is no color line in the Constitution. There is no color line in that phrase. So this is important. And then the question now of privileges and immunities. Um, Black Americans interpret this to mean that citizens of the various states enjoy rights equal to citizens of the individual states. And this arises very early in the 19th century when, for example, the new state of Missouri is looking to be admitted to, to the Union um, in 1820, 1821. Um, Missouri presents a constitution, a state constitution for Congress's review, and it is a constitution that bars, blanketly bars, the entry of free Black Americans into the state. Well, the question here is, are Black Americans citizens? And if indeed they are, um, doesn't that phrase, privileges and immunities, uh, mean that they cannot be regarded differently, um, whether be they from uh, Pennsylvania um, or New York or Maryland or Ohio? Um, well, um, unfortunately, in my story at least, um, Congress cannot agree on this point. But when we look through those debates in Congress, um, what we discover is not only do Black advocates understand the potential of this language in the Constitution, members of Congress do as well. There are those who fear it, right, because it appears perhaps to open the door um, to 
Black American mobility. Um, it appears perhaps to have the ability to override Missouri's desire um, to draw to block Black Americans from entry into the state. Um, but Black Americans um, recognize that Congress is divided, and indeed they will continue to provoke lawmakers on this question. Um, it is one that we understand um, Lincoln to have spoken to Lincoln's Attorney General Edward Bates um, will subsequently, um, in his own opinion, speak to this question and affirm for the first time Black Americans um, as citizens entitled to privileges, entitled to the immunities of citizenship. Um, and so it is a powerful argument that takes a very long time to get traction and to win, um, but it is one that Black Americans are deeply committed to. One more round on this fascinating uh explication of the Privileges and Immunities Clause of Article 4, Section 2. That clause uh, says, the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. Uh, Lucas Morell, some uh, abolitionists read that clause as if it had an ellipsis in it and should be read to say, the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States in the several states suggesting there were certain basic privileges of United States citizens that couldn't be abridged. And they read that to say the Dred Scott decision was wrong. And indeed, that slavery itself was a violation of the Constitution. Tell us more about the breadth of that privileges and immunities argument. Yeah, I, I, I would hasten to add that it was, of course, uh, conventional uh, construction or interpretation of the Constitution. It was one of several that they drew upon. And Frederick Douglass, of course, when he moved from being a pro-slavery, a believer that the Constitution was pro-slavery, then turned to believing that it was pro-liberty. Um, he read that as well as other provisions of the Constitution to say that this uh, categorically uh, uh, banned slavery. And Congress did, in fact, have the authority uh, under Article One, Section 8 of their general grants of, of powers um, uh, to ban slavery, not just where it didn't exist, federal territories, uh, but also where it already existed. Uh, another provision was the Bill of Attainder uh, Clause of the Constitution as an example of an anti-slavery uh, uh, clause, right? If, if you have someone who has broken the law and has been imprisoned for it, you could not seize his or her assets and deny those assets uh, or rights to the sons or daughters of uh, that criminal. And therefore, if by law you enslaved a particular person, that enslavement did not taint the children of that enslaved person. And they said, good grief, Bill of Attainers right there. Uh, you, uh, the states can't do that. And so that was that, along with privileges and immunities, along with even ironically enough, the the provision uh, to um, uh, appeal to the federal government for aid in repressing insurrections, domestic insurrections, not uh, attacks from without, but attacks from within, if you will. Uh, there was the general understanding that in the debates in the Constitutional Convention in 1787, that that was pretty clearly meant to apply not to just things like Shays' Rebellion, uh, of course, but slave rebellions. Well, there were those like Garrett Smith and Lysander Spooner and Wendell Phillips and Frederick Douglass who said, well, no, Congress could actually say that, gee, slavery as an institution is a destabilizing institution for Republican, small r, government. And therefore, anything that could undermine or subvert our self-governing way of life, Congress can act and the president can aid that and enforce that 
uh, against that uh, institution. And of course, for Frederick Douglass, the top of that list was slavery. And so I would say that uh, the Privileges and Immunities Clause in the federal constitution was just one of a number of the arrows in the quiver of anti uh, antebellum a, uh, anti-slavery advocates who were arguing that the United States Constitution, uh, uh, as Frederick Douglass put it, leaned towards liberty. Uh, and so uh, the, the onus, the burden would be on slaveholders to construe those provisions on behalf of an institution that only had legality at the local, that is to say, at the state level, not at the federal level. Thank you so much for that. Martha, Frederick Douglass's conclusion that the Constitution leans toward liberty, as Lucas says, uh, followed a changing of his mind. He'd initially thought that the Constitution was a pro-slavery document, like the Garrisonians. But when he read Madison's recently published notes, published in the 1840s, which said that the Constitution was careful not to convey the idea there could be property in man, that changed his conception of himself as a man and a citizen, and he decided the Constitution leaned toward liberty. And indeed, Justice McLean, in his Dred Scott dissent, quoted Madison's language to refute Chief Justice Taney's conclusion that the Constitution recognized no rights which, uh, of black people, which white people were bound to respect. Uh, to what degree was this debate, which is a very constitutional and legal debate, uh, live and central? And, and, and was there a strong division of views among the African-American community about whether the Constitution was or was not a pro-slavery document? Um, here we look to the uh, debates that unfold um, from the 1830s forward during what we refer to today as the colored convention movement. Um, this is um, an African-American um, political culture um, that grows up in those years during which Black Americans are largely excluded from the political parties, um, largely kept from the polls. Um, nonetheless, Black Americans come together locally at the state level and nationally beginning in 1830 um, to deliberate the issues of the day, including this question, right? What is the Constitution and who are we in relationship to it? So when Douglas um, as you describe, um, begins to and embraces the Constitution as an anti-slavery document, as, a, um, as an asset to Black Americans. He's very much now um, stepping into the mainstream of Black thought as exemplified by the debates in the colored conventions. Um, and it's a critical turn um, because what um, those uh, delegates know um, are two things. Um, on the one hand, um, to just come back to a minute to the earlier discussion, um, that state citizenship matters a great deal in the antebellum period. In fact, it is in the individual states where those things that today we would term um, civil rights are being arbitrated. For example, voting rights, wholly in the hands of the individual states. And so these are men who are um, deeply aware of the power, the value, the worth of state citizenship. Consider, for example, men in New York and Pennsylvania, Black men in New York and Pennsylvania, um, who vote and then are disenfranchised. And the their retort is that we 
are citizens of the state, and that indeed makes us um, unequivocally eligible to vote. Um, but it is also true um, that Black Americans um, uh, in the years leading up to Dred Scott are looking for a bulwark, a defense, a way to resist um, one of the most popular political movements of the antebellum period, and that is the colonization movement, um, a movement um, that mobilizes um, political will, um, resources, and then uses that to materially remove Black Americans from the United States to colonies like Liberia. Um, Black Americans are looking for a bulwark, men like Douglas looking for a bulwark against the increasing threat of colonization, including forced colonization. Um, and these arguments, this view of the Constitution um, as a bulwark, as an ally, is as an, a document of last resort for Black Americans um, is nearly unavoidable in this period for Black Americans, um, even those who are no longer enslaved, but understand that the spirit of colonization runs high in many places um, and that they remain at risk, in a sense, as had Native Americans for being removed um, against their will um, citizenship, they hope, will um, resist that. Lucas Morrell, back to Lincoln, although he cited Franklin, Hamilton, and Governor Morris as among the most noted anti-slavery men of their time, he was also centrally influenced, as you argue, by Washington and Jefferson and other slave holders. How did Lincoln grapple with the fact that Washington and Jefferson and other founders held slaves in channeling their lessons in the Emancipation Proclamation? That's an excellent question. It's a question I get every year when I teach <laughs> American government, when I teach race and equality, when I teach my seminar on Lincoln statesmanship. Uh, and to, to speak to uh, Professor Jones, who uh, politely did not mention that Lincoln for the longest time <laughs> was a pro-colonizationist. He thought it would be, uh, the word used at the time was deportation. Uh, his was voluntary. Uh, but that said, there were people who were not interested in voluntary. They just wanted to get rid of black people. Uh, Lincoln fairly early, though, I think, even though he publicly supported it as early as 1854, he publicly said, uh, if you will, shipping black people to Liberia is a fool's errand. It would never work. Um, and, and so it, he's kind of uh, at odds with himself in terms of what he himself believes uh, that black people are owed. Uh, uh, as, as well as uh, at odds with a, a majority of the population in the free state of Illinois, which is uh, racist. Um, Illinois was like competing with Indiana, another free state, to see who was more racist, right? Illinois, you couldn't serve in the militia if you were a black person, a jury if a white person was a defendant. Uh, you uh, were, in, you had, of course, no voting rights, very few civil rights. And in the 1850s, they passed a law banning the immigration of black people into Illinois. Now, there were less than, there were maybe five, 6,000 black people in the entire state of Illinois, but they didn't want one more. Uh, that's the environment in which Lincoln is trying to move his, his neighbors and his fellow countrymen in the direction of bringing to its fruition the promise, the full promise, uh, what, what Professor Jones mentioned as the ceiling, right? The max aspiration of the Declaration uh, of Independence. And so what did Lincoln do? He had to do this rhetorically. In other words, um, there was no point in advocating for something that you could not get majority 
if you will, white support for, white backing for. And abolitionists had no way of shifting the needle nationally, in Lincoln's opinion, in that pivotal decade of the 1850s. So if politics is the art of the possible, what did Lincoln do with slaveholder Washington? What did he do with slaveholder Madison, slaveholder Jefferson? He devoted, he directed the nation's gaze, their public attention to the public actions of the most iconic figure, figures of our nation's past. And what he pointed to was what they put in writing, as Ralph Ellison, the wonderful uh, author of Invisible Man, kept reminding us, is that those sacred documents, the Declaration, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, those belong to black people as much as jazz and the blues belong to jazz people. And so the fact that those white slaveholders put in writing, not what was written in the Confederate Constitution, which made it clear uh, that white supremacy was the systemic rule for those states in that attempt at forming a new nation. Rather, what they put in writing, usually, not always, uh, what they put in writing, writing was an appeal to the laws of nature of nature's God. What they put in writing was equality, human equality. What they put in writing was consent of the governed. No racial qualifications in those statements. statements. And so black people said, where do we sign, right? Uh, King, King saw this, Lincoln saw this, all the great, Frederick Douglass uh, eventually saw this, all of the great heroes, I believe, of uh, the, the long civil rights movement that is our American history uh, have seized not just on the ideals of the Declaration, but also the actions of a Washington and a Jefferson that made it possible for a lot of racist people to move in the direction of a, a way of looking at each other as fellow human beings and therewith as fellow citizens. And therefore, Frederick Douglass, for example, in his greatest speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, he is studiously silent about the founders being slaveholders, but he mentions Washington one time to say what? That he couldn't go to his deathbed without freeing his slaves, right? He doesn't mention that Washington was for so long a slaveholder, but rather the, emancipa the Emancipation Act of the founding father. And so with, Was with Washington, as well with Jefferson, Lincoln tells the nation the most important things they need to know to take their political bearings. And what was that? That they banned slavery as soon as they could under the United States Constitution. It was a slaveholding president, Thomas Jefferson, who in March of 1807 passed the bill that would take effect January 1, 1808, banning the importation of slaves. Well, if you took care of slavery supply, what do you do about its expansion? The only territory held by the American people at large was the Northwest Territory. So the Articles of Confe Confederation Congress in 1787, Article 6 of the Northwest Ordinance bans slavery explicitly in that territory. And the new Congress under the new Constitution of 1787, ratified the following year, that first Congress uh, re-ups or renews that ban in the Northwest Territory of slavery. In 1820, Lincoln reminds us that in our history, uh, Congress uh, equated slave importation into the United States with piracy. And as far as I know, the only punishment for piracy is, as they say, hanging by the neck until dead. The only president to have anyone executed for violating those laws with regards to the importation of slaves, I'll give you three guesses, it's Abraham Lincoln. 
Wow. So powerful to remind us that Lincoln emphasized what the founders publicly wrote in general rather than their private actions. And that was central in his channeling of the legacy of the founders. Martha Jones, uh, the founders uh, had very different legacies on slavery. And as uh, Professor Kilamar argues in his uh, new book, The Words That Made Us, uh, Washington and Franklin grew on the question of slavery, whereas Madison and Jefferson did not and became more uh, attached to the institution. Um, what is the relevance uh, of that in how we should think about the legacy of Madison Jefferson versus Washington and Franklin, and, and more broadly about the relationship between uh, the founders and uh, uh, Juneteenth? Well, here I, I want to come back for a moment to the uh, color convention movement because um, it would be a mistake for us to leave um, listeners with the impression um, that Black Americans are um, untroubled um, or even of one mind um, about, indeed, how to think about um, the founders, um, their legacy, um, their record. Um, with respect to both the Declaration and the Constitution. And there are those um, among Black activists who caution Black Americans who um, too blithely, perhaps, um, too uncritically um, look to embrace those documents, to embrace those legacies, um, because what they say is, um, if we indeed become citizens, if we assume right, the, the privileges, the rights of citizens, we also assume the liabilities of this nation. Right? And that already um, by 1830 and certainly by 1850, Black Americans recognize right, um, the, um, the tragic dimensions um, of the national legacy, including, for example, um, the removal of Native Americans, um, the, um, the vivid um, tragedy of the Trail of Tears. Um, Black Americans have been witness to this, and they are reluctant um, to easily or blithely assume um, the, um, the full responsibilities of citizenship. Um, so I think that the records of these um, early founders, but the record more generally of the United States is something that Black Americans take very seriously. And that will not end um, with the Civil War. It will not end with emancipation. Um, it will not end with Juneteenth. That um, Black Americans again and again um, across the 19th and into the 20th century will ask um, profound questions and express um, true ambivalences about what it means to be um, a full citizen of a nation, um, to carry the liabilities of a nation that will, by the end of the century, be engaged in um, imperialism and racism um, across the globe. Um, this is um, a touchstone for Black Americans um, and this example from the early period is just um, that, um, an early example. We've worked our way from the founding to the Emancipation Proclamation. Now uh, take us with our new rich knowledge 
um, into Lincoln's mind as he's issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, on the one hand, you've told us he's channeling the highest ideals of the Declaration and the original Constitution. On the other, he's drafting a profoundly legalistic document, which is limited only to the areas in which he believes that he has uh, power as executive of the United States. So what is Lincoln trying to achieve in the, in the Emancipation Proclamation? And why is it um, limited in the ways that it is? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a huge question. I'll, I'll try to give a tidy answer. He's trying to accomplish a number of things. Fundamentally, is he makes most explicit uh, pretty much every time he can talk about it, but most famously in his letter to Horace Greeley, when he's already drafted an Emancipation Proclamation, but hasn't made that public to anyone but his cabinet. Probably the most incredibly secret, uh, the greatest secret in Washington, D.C. history <laughs> that didn't get leaked was Lincoln's draft of an Emancipation Proclamation to Horace Greeley, whom he met when he was a congressman back in the 18, late 1840s. Uh, he said that he's fighting this war uh, to preserve union, paramount, my paramount uh, objective. And it's not to free slaves uh, uh, um, uh, or, or to keep them in slavery, right? Uh, so what is he trying to do? He's trying to win the war. And so publicly, he has to do, and, and the way I have come to formulate this is he has to find a constitutional reason to do, as we say today, the right thing. So he takes a humanitarian end, emancipating three to four, well, what ultimately will be three to four million black uh, Americans. He has to take a humanitarian end, but as constitutional president of the United States, he turns it into a constitutional means in order to do so legitimately. Uh, legitimately. Um, in other words, he was trying to teach the country over and over again what this war is about is a constitutional way of life. It's not just what we do, but how we do it. That is all important. And that involves the rule of law. He can't, as president, simply do whatever he wants. He has to do only those things he, have been, he has been vested power, executive power, as Article 2 puts it, by the American people. He can only do what they have granted him authority to do. And now it's a time of war. He could not do this on March 4th, 1861. We were at peace, more or less, uh, in March. It wasn't until the firing on Fort Sumter that Lincoln finally calls forth the militia and, and then calls Congress back into session on July 4th. And so what Lincoln is doing in the Emancipation Proclamation, it's the culmination of an attempt to keep uh, the so-called, as Professor Jones mentioned earlier, the so-called border slave states in the Union, right? Kentucky did not secede. Maryland did not secede. Delaware did not secede. Missouri did not secede. Now, Missouri, my goodness, there's a civil war within a civil war in Missouri, but Lincoln is doing all he can to keep the Union together. So he has to emancipate in a way where he won't uh, uh, antagonize those who are already fighting for something that's clearly constitutional in their mind, which is preserving the union. Okay. So it is a, a supreme act, in my opinion, of political prudence. Uh, what I would I deem statesmanship. Lincoln isn't just a good politician. He is a great one, not just in terms of what he manages to do, but how he marshals consent on behalf of the noblest ideals of the union. And so emancipation isn't simply a, a, a what he would call later the central act of my administration. Um, it isn't something uh, ju that's just so world historically awesome, right? Sam and Chase was a chaser, Seward, who had to remind Lincoln in his very legal 
legally worded Emancipation Proclamation, you know what? You ought to say something about how cool this is and what, what you're doing. And Lincoln does, but then he couches it with, but as a commander in chief, chief in a time of war, actual rebellion, right? He keeps reminding the country, I have authority to do this. I have authority to do this. So it's the right thing, yes, but it is for the right reason as I understand my authority as executive of the United States. So it is a combination of things that only the, the most prudent and high-minded person, I think, could have not just declared, but then marshaled an army and navy and sufficient white public support behind. Remember, there is a battle in the newspapers between lawyers who aren't Confederates about the very legality, the very constitutionality of freeing slaves in rebel-held territory. Who do you think is a part of that? Professor Jones mentioned Judge uh, McLean. The less senior or the, the more junior justice was Benjamin Curtis. And it was that opinion that was Lincoln's favorite. And it was Curtis who, even though he dissented in Dred Scott, which turned out to be his swan song as a Supreme Court justice, it was Curtis who published a pamphlet about 80, 90 pages long called Executive Power. He wasn't praising Lincoln. He was condemning him for trying civilians in military courts, shutting down presses, and for emancipation. So you got this New England statesman, Benjamin Curtis, one of the two dissenters in the 1857 Dred Scott case, who is excoriating Lincoln in 1862-63 for freeing slaves, something we see as just supremely, obviously moral. Well, Lincoln says, it is supremely, obviously moral. The question is, can I do it constitutionally? And thankfully, the 13th Amendment was ratified so that it could, as Lincoln put it, wrap the whole thing up. It is a king's cure uh, for the evil. Well, it is time for closing thoughts in this wonderful discussion. Martha, first thoughts to you. Why do we celebrate Juneteenth, given the fact that it commemorates the issuing of the Emancipation Proclamation uh, two and a half years after it was issued? And what should Americans commemorate and celebrate on Juneteenth? I think it's fair to say that where we sit in 2021, um, uh, as Juneteenth approaches, um, uh, the nation is catching up with Black Americans, um, which is to say, um, if as a collective, as a nation, as a whole, um, Juneteenth has arrived on our radar and is increasingly being recognized by uh, state legislatures, um, by institutions like my own university, which has deemed Juneteenth to be um, a university holiday for the first time in 2021. Um, Black Americans have been marking this day for a very long time. And that is as true um, for um, January 1st. Um, and that anniversary where Black Americans have long gathered um, to mark that midnight hour um, when the Emancipation Proclamation um, took its formal legal effect. And until today, watch night um, in many communities um, is an occasion that is um, celebrated. Um, we know that Black Americans have... Um, going back to the antebellum years, marked August 1st, West Indian Emancipation Day, as it was called in Frederick Douglass's time, um, celebrating um, British abolition of slavery. And then um, the debate over July 4th versus July 5th, um, but how to mark 
the independence of the nation with that critical lens that Frederick Douglass so importantly brought to the occasion. Um, so it's to say that um, if we looked out across the national calendar, um, historically, we would recognize that Black Americans have long um, honored these days, even if they did so without the, the full um, and robust um, consent of the nation as a whole. Um, and they have honored um, many of the, um, the men and women who were responsible um, for um, breathing life into those occasions, despite extraordinary circumstances. I must just add right, that um, Black Americans understand um, both the power um, and the scope and the ambition of something like the Emancipation Proclamation, and they understand how the federal government failed to um, account for, to provide for, um, to offer shelter to um, so many of now refugees, Black refugees from the American South, who are going to fill beyond capacity every facility in Virginia and in the District of Columbia um, in those years um, between 1863 and 1865, um, that this is a celebration born um, out of struggle um, and um, oftentimes in the face of too much indifference um, by the nation as a whole. Um, so part of what's remarkable perhaps about 2021 for me um, is that um, we are watching as um, the rest of the country catches up to Black Americans. Lucas, the last words in this superb discussion are to you. Why do we celebrate Juneteenth and what should Americans commemorate and celebrate on Juneteenth? Oh, thank you. Uh, Professor Jones actually stole my closing line, which was that uh, Juneteenth really is, or it seems like it has come to be the culmination of a debate that Blacks have been carrying out amongst themselves and with white neighbors, presumably, but especially amongst themselves about how to deal with emancipation and abolition. Um, she mentioned ambivalence. Uh, it's a great word to describe their own decision to say, you know what? We mark our liberation in the law, in the Constitution, as a monumental event, but with some trepidation, because we're to do so has to involve reminding ourselves and the nation at large that we once treated people the worst way you could treat them, and that is to say, as the mere beasts of the field. And so Blacks had debated within themselves, well, should we celebrate something where we have to remind what had happened to most of us, not all of us, but most of us on American soil. And so the debate was, is it September 22nd when Lincoln issued his preliminary emancipation? Is it January 1st when it finally came through, when lightning struck, right, the telegraph, where they got the word and it didn't come on, you know, right after midnight, it came uh, near noon or, or one when, when Lincoln finally was done uh, uh, shaking hands. Um, do we mark it on June 19th? And what I like about June 19th, um, I, I don't think it should replace July 4th. I don't think it should be equal to July 4th. Uh, but for July 4th, but for the Emancipation Proclamation, there would, of course, be no Juneteenth. But what, uh, why I call it a distinctly American holiday is precisely because marking liberation two and a half years, if you will, after the fact is so American, right? It is such a way for us to be at least uh, somewhat critical somewhat uh, half a step removed 
to that great achievement of Lincoln's and the country's, uh, but also to remind ourselves, wow, this is a work that isn't done by one man. It's not even done by government. It is a work that involves, if you will, we the people. It involves all of the American people, and that means you have to get their consent. And so the, the burden of continuing to remind ourselves of what the best of us is and persuading each other that this really is the best way to go, uh, that will remain the task of every generation. Juneteenth, understood through the lens of July 4th, is a great way to do that. Thank you so much for that. That was amazing. Wow. I learned so much. Just superb. Bravo to both of you. Phenomenal. It's a real honor. Thank you very, very much. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Anna Salvatore, Mac Taylor, Jackie McDermott, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone, anywhere who is eager for a weekly dose of constitutional light, illumination, and debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.